0: I wonder, how many of you have ever received one of these little gifts? On your windscreen, you've turned back up and you've thought, oh, bother, or something to that effect. So frustrating, it's so annoying, we've done something we shouldn't, and bam, we've got done for it. We've got a penalty, we've got to pay it off quick. And uh, I wonder how many of us immediately promised ourselves we would never do that again. We'd always take care of the signs, and we'd check them out, and we make sure we didn't ever park but I wonder how many of us actually really changed our ways as a result. How effective do you think penalties are and fines as a way of trying to get us to live and do the right thing? Well, recently in Dubai, they, did, uh, they implemented this system, this thing called the White Points Scheme, where drivers who abide by traffic laws received white points, and they were eligible then to receive prizes, including like a brand new car. And it's reported that um, the winners have increased year on year since the scheme was launched just three years ago. People love the incentive and uh, start behaving because of it. Don't know which you think is best in terms of shaping behavior, fines or incentives. I think it's probably fair to say that many people around see God as a bit like a traffic warden. There's a set of rules contained in a leather-bound book somewhere, The Christian Zone, and when we fail to live up to those rules, He's just there quickly to catch us out, quickly to punish us, and to deal out fines. Well, this couldn't be further from the truth. The series I'm beginning tonight, this same talk will be next Sunday morning, but I'm beginning tonight. is called Investment and return, investment and return. I believe Jesus came not to take anything from us. He didn't come to give us a set of rules to obey, which would essentially spoil our fun, but essentially to give us the experience of life here and into eternity, which is what life can be at its very best. In the last chapter of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which is a picture of the future, the coming kingdom, the rule and the reign of God fully expressed, Uh, it says this. This is Jesus speaking, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what they have done. He's returning with reward. He wants to reward us. And in these coming weeks, it's my hope that we'll look together at some of the practical ways that we can invest in God's kingdom so that we position ourselves for his reward, both in the life to come, but more especially we'll be focusing on in this life. So that we can have the kind of life that we're called to live, free and full and blessed. Jesus is recording in uh, recorded in John chapter 10, verse 10, as saying this: "I have come." The reason Jesus, God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or the New Century Version: "I came to give life, life in all its fullness." And I want to look at what the Bible tells us about a few main aspects of what the rewarded life, the full life, really looks like. A life of reaping positive things, having a fruitful life, where our prayers are often answered, where we're flourishing in wisdom, where we know financial security, that we live life free, we live life refreshed. All these are things I want, and I would imagine that many of you would too. The question is, how do we attain those things? And the answer is indirectly. Indirectly. The open secret is that we need to invest something in order to gain something greater. It'd be great if there was a slot machine somewhere we could just feed the coins in, get out exactly what we're looking for in that moment. Unfortunately, it's not the way it works. The balance of Scripture talks about… Oh, I'll come onto that in a minute. It leads us to believe anyway that we don't get a rewarded life from trying to get rewarded, or live a good life from striving to be good. We don't get wisdom from trying as hard as we possibly can to be wise. We don't have the comfort of knowing that our needs will be met by trying to get all of our needs met. We don't become holy by trying to become holy. These things come our way as we invest in other things. We invest in behaviors and activities that don't directly generate these rewards, these returns, but which indirectly result in them. And we see this principle at work in many places. Take a seed. We have something small. We put it in the ground. It becomes something substantial. We bury an acorn. Over time, it becomes an oak tree. The acorn is the investment, if you like. The oak tree is the return. It's not the same thing. It's the fruit of what was invested. It's far more than what we started with. Such a small thing, but it has the potential to recreate life over and over again through the ongoing process of investment and return. What we invest gets multiplied. And of course, in our society today, we understand this dynamic. We send our children to school as an investment in their future. We may pay a small percentage of our salary into a pension fund that will later see us through our retirement. The stock market works this way. Farming works this way. Don't know how many of you are already on with the uh, Rugby World Cup. Started last week, I saw the end of the game yesterday, England versus Wales with an Englishman and a Welshwoman. And uh, in the last, the closing minutes, England didn't do so well and uh, very sad, but uh, as as we are in World Cup season, I thought this illustration would fit very well here. Some of our minds go back to 2003, to the World Cup, Rugby World Cup. England were playing Australia, and at the end of the 80 minutes at full time, both England and Australia were tied 14 points each. Went into extra time, and extra time, England, I think, was leading Australia then also scored a penalty right in the closing minutes, and they were tied at 17 points each. And the suspense was absolutely intense. There were 83,000 spectators in the ground. There were millions watching on the live television coverage. And with 26 seconds left before the end of extra time, it all came down to this. There's offside surely against England, no Martin Johnson has it, he drives, there's 35 seconds to go, this is the one, it's coming back for Johnny Wilkinson, he drops for World Cup glory, It's it's over, he's done it, Johnny Wilkinson is England's hero yet again, and there's no time for Australia to come back, England have just won the World Cup. Yay, England. <laughs> Very exciting game. And here's Johnny Wilkinson with a captain, Martin Johnson, is holding the World Cup for England, the first time England had ever won it. Now, Johnny Wilkinson's reward came from countless hours of investment, countless hours of practice practice that consisted not of holding a trophy and kind of getting that right, you know, to make sure he could do that right on the day, the the result, but rather investing in aspects of his games that indirectly contributed towards that end. And his coach, Clive Woodward, said this, Johnny is one of the hardest trainers in the, the sport has ever seen. Many will highlight the hours he spent in solitude, kicking goal kick after goal kick, And there were times I needed to drag him off the field and send him to bed. But for me, it was the time he dedicated to his agility work, the eye training, and the opposition analysis that stands out. That work was ultimately the difference between him being a great fly half and becoming the world's best. It was all these details, seeds, laboriously sown, again and again, investing again and again, that came together, to reap their rewards as he drop-kicked that winning goal in the closing seconds of the, the game that led to England's greatest prize in rugby. Investment and return is a principle that God has set up. It's a rule of the universe, if you like. And it works not only with good things, it also happens to work with bad things. We see this principle through Scripture. The Bible is often called, it's called sowing and reaping. You sow the investment, you reap the return same dynamic. And so, as we look through Scripture, as I have observed, this is Job 4.8, those who sow trouble reap it. We probably all know troublemakers, they're always in trouble. The message, whoever sows sin reaps weeds. Proverbs 22.8, those who sow injustice reap calamity. Hosea gives us both, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love. But you, he says, have planted wickedness and you have reaped evil. Lastly, Proverbs 11:18, on the positive side, those who sow righteousness reap a sure reward. So, whether what we invest is good or bad, the return is of the same kind, but it'll be a multiple of what we've sown. Hosea writes this in chapter 8, verse 7, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Be careful what you invest, because while it may be a small thing you sow, it will multiply. Let's say you're married. If we think this little bit of flirting with a colleague at work isn't really a big deal, you know, sending uh, that person flirtatious emails, maybe staying late at the bar for just just an after-work drink, you know, with her alone or him alone, it really doesn't matter, does it? But that's all sowing, sowing, and that investment over time will begin to grow. And it grows into a closer and closer relationship, and before you know it suddenly, has become an affair. Our marriage blows up, it shatters our relationships with our children, our reputation is dashed, we end up in despair in a bedsit, wondering what happened. But what happened was, we invested in something and received the return on that. We sowed a wind and reaped a whirlwind. And the opposite experience, of course, is true. I'm sure an older couple with a long and loving marriage will tell you that they didn't just arrive there one day. That relationship is the result of years of investment, of little acts of love, of small sacrifice, of positive words, of ongoing forgiveness. When we sow in that way, the seeds, they just seem inconsequential in the moment, those little tiny things, thoughtful acts, almost invisible. But the result of that kind of hard work Over a life in marriage is very evident. So, I want to look at a passage with you tonight from Paul's letter to the Galatians, and this unpacks this principle of sowing and reaping, of investment and return. Paul wrote to the Galatian church, and we're just going to have a look at Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. So, if you have a Bible or something, you can switch on and look it up. Galatians 6. If you have a Bible, it's about four millimeters from the back cover. Okay, this is Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. People reap what they sow. Those who sow to please their sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Those who sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So, let's begin there in verse 7. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Why is Paul saying that his readers should not be deceived? How might we be deceived? Well, we may easily be deceived because we find ourselves sowing but not apparently reaping. We're investing, but there's no apparent return on that investment. Paul says if we sow to please the sinful nature, we will reap destruction, the destruction of relationship, destruction of peace, of our reputations and all sorts, and yet we can so easily be deceived we, we sometimes maybe think we can sow one kind of seed and hope to get a different kind of harvest. We can sow weeds in our lives and we think we might get a crop of wheat, but Paul says don't be deceived. It doesn't work that way. You will reap what you sow, and we're also deceived sometimes by delay you know, hey, I've been sowing to please my sinful nature for most of the last year, and as far as I can tell, I haven't reaped any destruction. And we're deceived by delay in that the consequences of what we're sowing don't necessarily happen. They don't happen immediately for our sins. But don't be deceived by delay, Paul says, because if if the major consequences haven't, you know, landed on you yet, it doesn't mean that they won't. The people of Israel, we see this through the Old Testament, they were warned again and again by the prophets, these men who spoke on behalf of God, that that promise that God had made, if you turn from Him, He will scatter you into exile. Other nations will come conquer you and take you away, and they they did. They just turned from Him. They worshipped idols, other gods. They misbehaved in endless ways, but for years and years and years, God didn't act. And the prophets kept pleading with them, saying, it's going to happen if you don't turn back to God, it's going to happen. And then it did. Just last week I sat and jotted down a list of Christian leaders who I know, uh, whether closely or more distantly, their acquaintances, people I've met, who've fallen into serious sin, which has blown them out of ministry and uh, some, as I say, were friends, others acquaintances, some were known internationally, some were in smaller arenas of leadership. I stopped counting at over 20 Christian leaders who fell into sin, which disqualified them for ministry. And that doesn't count any of those who I've heard of, of which there are many more, you know, that I haven't personally met. And in almost every case, not all of the cases, but in almost every case, probably 90%, it was adultery that's what happened. And many of them had been living some sort of double life, compromised life for many years. And it seems that maybe some of them were thinking, you know, God's blessing my ministry. God's using me and spiritual gifts are happening through my life. People are coming to Christ through my ministry. People are getting healed. My church is growing. And, you know, I'm sinning secretly here. I don't seem to be reaping any destruction. But having had no consequences for, in many cases, an extended period of time, the time for reaping arrived, and what they were doing blew them up. And Paul's caution is, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. Now again, it's the same with good things too. We can be deceived by delay because we're being faithful in behaving in a way which we know is pleasing to the Lord, we're making God-honoring choices, we're sowing good things, and we don't seem to be reaping. We've been selfless and prayerful, we've been kind and loving, we've been generous, we've been resisting temptation, and life is just not going well for us. We're reaping bad things, it feels, and we just say, you know, this is not fair, this is surely not right. And we can become deceived that people don't reap what they sow. I'm sowing to the Spirit here, but it feels like I'm just reaping destruction. We invest our lives in things of eternal significance. We store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, but we can't see that treasure now. But the principles of farming are the same as the principles of the spiritual life. We will reap what we sow. If we invest in our relationship with God, it's going to work out well. If we invest in the opposite, it ain't. Just like when you put seeds in the ground, grain of wheat, whatever, next moment you don't have a crop of wheat. When you put daffodil bulbs in the ground, you don't immediately have flowers. Time passes before you then reap on what you've sown. When I was a lad, we had we had a 140 foot long garden, and at the end of that garden was a huge vegetable patch. And uh, me and my two brothers, I and my two brothers had uh, a portion each vegetable patch, and we would dig the earth over like two spades deep and then we'd put all this compost in and bash it all up, chop it all up. Then we'd get a sieve and we'd sieve out all the stones and we'd make all the topsoil really like fine, perfect, and put some furrows and bits of string to make them straight and then we would seed along there and then we'd gently rake it over and it was all like beautiful and radishes and lettuce and beetroot and carrots. And then we'd go over it religiously with our watering can daily, up and down, up and down. And, um, and then little green plants would appear. But they'd often be weeds. You know, they're enjoying this nicely sieved earth, this beautiful regular watering. And it's like, you know, as kids, we're like, I'm reaping something different to what I sowed. I did not sow thistles. And so we'd pull out these weeds. And a week later, there was still nothing at all that looked anything like the picture on the seed packets. It looked like all this hours and hours of work had been for nothing. But our father you can see the parallel coming here, our father said it would be worth it. It just didn't feel like it was worth it to us. But Paul says, don't be deceived by delay. A harvest of what we've sown will come, and eventually, as lads, it did for us as well. So, verse 9, he says here, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't give up sowing to please God, because if we press on with it, the harvest will come. So, verse 7 again, don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked. What does that mean? Well, it's pretty self-explanatory, I think. The word mocked literally means to turn your nose up. You cannot turn your nose up at God. You cannot sneer at God. In other words, you can't show contempt for God and His ordering of the universe. God sees everything. The Bible tells us that He perceives our thoughts from afar. He knows our words before we even speak them at Psalm 139. God cannot be fooled, and He cannot be mocked. God will work this principle of sowing and reaping in our lives, whether we like it or not. He'll allow us to sow to our sinful nature, often for a long time, but the consequences, if we continue to do so, will one day come. And then we come to the crux of the verse, repeating this again. People reap what they sow. So, if you sow barley seed, you don't reap corn. So, cucumber seeds, you're not going to get strawberries. You get back according to your investment. Jesus said, if you judge others, what will happen? You yourself will be judged. If we live by the sword, we'll die by the sword. If you're violent, you're going to have violence coming at you. If I sow criticism, I'm going to be criticized. If I sow life to others… I will reap life for myself. If I sow provision for others, I will reap provision for myself. If I sow forgiveness to others, I will reap forgiveness. You get the point. You get back a multiple of what you sow, and the quality and the quantity of our returns also determined by that same principle. Using the analogy of farming, if you work hard, you plant your seed liberally, you're going to get back a great harvest. But if you sleep through planting season and then you carelessly throw a few handfuls of seed out in a field, you will have a very meager harvest. Two people who, in the break there, used that prophecy mic, said things, neither of them have any idea what I'm speaking about today. Uh, Lizzie, I heard her voice, the measure you use, with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So, if you want to have a great marriage. If you're married, you must so see that will result in a great marriage. If you're not yet married, but you're intending to be, you might wanna sign up for the pre-marriage course that begins in February. You'll see that in the bulletin when it comes. We're also just rerunning a mega marriage event, 16th of October, you'll see it in the bulletin there, I'd recommend that. Invest in your marriage. They're a great investment in the future of your relationship that will help you reap returns over the long haul. If you wanna have a great relationship with your children, Why not invest in developing your parenting skills? We've got a course, a five-week course coming up. Again, that's in February. Look out for that. If you want financial security, if you don't want bailiffs knocking on your door, if you don't want to have to call your parents to pay off your credit card, uh, so disciplined habits of spending in your life now. And incidentally, if you are currently struggling with debt issues, I'd recommend you get in touch with our trained team here. We've got Trent Debt Advice and you can see that I think probably in the bulletin, certainly the connect area. And in fact, I noticed as I came in, in the men's lose, you can get the details for that. If you want to reap a deeply connected, warm relationship with God, invest in your relationship with Him. Learn, you know, spend time with God. Learn how to get into the Bible, read it, spend time in prayer. If you want great friends, what do you have to do? Invest in relationships. Sow into your relationships and likewise sow into your relationship with God. So, back to the passage here, verse 8. Those who sow to please their sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. What does Paul mean by the sinful nature? Other translations say, sow to." if you sow to please the flesh, what is the flesh? Well, this is what Scottish Bible scholar William Barclay wrote 50 years ago about the flesh. It's a little bit wordy, but uh, bear with me. The flesh, he says, is what man has made himself in contrast with man as God made him. The flesh is man as he has allowed himself to become in contrast to man as God meant him to be. The flesh stands for the total effect upon man of his own sin and of the sins of his fathers and of the sin of all men who have gone before him. The flesh is human nature as it has become through sin. The flesh stands for human nature, weakened, vitiated. I had to look that up too. It means ruined, I think. Tainted by sin. The flesh is man as he is apart from Jesus Christ. So, to paraphrase him, the flesh is what we human beings are like when we try to operate independently of God. When we say, you know, to God, I'll take it from here. I'm just going to do this my way when we rely on ourselves, when we look to our own wisdom, our own competence, our own strength, when God really isn't on our screen, on our radar, and we just go ahead doing what we want to do without any real reference to Him. The flesh is our overwhelming compulsion towards independence from God. That's what the sinful nature is. So, Paul's saying, if you live like that, if you invest in that kind of life, you will reap destruction, Now, as it happens, the previous page, he's talked to us about the the fruit of that investment, and this is in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions factions and envy drunkenness orgies and the like and as we've seen our flesh wants us to behave in ways contrary to God's best for us and just to skim through a few of those behaviors let's just begin there right at the beginning sexual immorality impurity and debauchery such things such things have been widespread throughout history world history but they're certainly no less a part of our contemporary culture now than they were in the first century I don't know whether you'd agree that those words pretty much sum up 21st century Nottingham's norm for especially young adults. If you add in drunkenness from further down the list, you've got a pretty accurate description there of Freshers' Week, haven't you? Some of you know very acutely what I'm talking about because you've just been through that. You know, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, and drunkenness Describe my Freshers' Week when I was young. I'm sure it hasn't changed much. So I could go on through the list, through the list, but uh, there's no need to do that. Uh, but uh, As Christians, bear in mind this, we're not exempt from doing some of these things. It's not a case of saying, oh, how naughty some non-Christians are, you know, wag our finger at the world. You know who Paul is writing this letter to? It's not an open public letter. He's writing to a church and he's saying, guys, I'm talking to you. I'm exhorting you to steer away from what your flesh yearns for, because if we sow to please our flesh, our sinful nature, we will reap destruction what does destruction look like? Well, let's just look at some of the words he uses there in verse 20. This is what it looks like. Uh, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. If that describes the kind of fruit that you would like to reap in your life, then go ahead, says Paul, and sow to the sinful nature. But who really likes reaping things like hatred? What about discord? Dissensions and factions, people falling out with each other, relationships being strained, people taking sides in conflicts. What about fits of rage? How many of us like that? The inability to control tempers, selfish ambition, and jealousy, and envy, everyone out for themselves and wanting what others have. These are some of the fruits of sowing to please ourselves rather than sowing to please God. I'd say that's pretty bad news as attractive as sin might sometimes appear, I doubt any of us really want to be reaping that stuff. So, how do we reap something different? Well, if we continue in verse 8, Paul says that those… We're over the page now. This is chapter 6, verse 8. Those who… so, to please their simple nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Those who sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will receive, will reap, sorry, eternal life. Will reap eternal life. So, let's just quickly look at what eternal life is, because at first glance it might sound very familiar, and it might seem like Paul's obviously referring to salvation. But here's the thing about when you read the scriptures you need to uh, look at a verse with reference to other verses and understand the context. And so we know from other verses that eternal salvation cannot be earned. You can't sow to the Spirit and reap salvation. Uh, Like Ephesians 2 verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. So if salvation is a gift, we can't earn it, we can't score points for it. We can't in any way merit it by our own achievements. So, while the principle of sowing and reaping works in so many areas of life, the one area where it doesn't work is salvation. So, what does Paul really mean here by eternal life? His use is best understood as meaning the kind of life that we can enjoy now and on into eternity with God. It can be described as real life, blessed life, genuine life. The word often used for it would be abundant life. So, Paul, in his use of the words eternal life here, really is meaning that if we sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, from God, we will reap abundant life. Somebody else who spoke from that microphone just now, again, no idea what I was speaking on, I'm assuming, it was Luke's voice I heard, press into the things of the Spirit, and you'll see the fruit of that. Feels to me like the Lord might be just affirming what we're talking about. So, what is the fruit of sowing to please the Spirit of God? If we sow that to please the Spirit, what might we reap? Well, we just go back again to chapter 5 here. And uh, it says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now you're talking, you know, that stuff sounds good to me. I don't know about you, but that sounds good. Love to... Be uh, you know, being loving and being loved. That sounds a lot better to me than hatred, which was on the other list. Joy, being at peace and surrounded by peace. The other list had discord, the very opposite of that. Patient, kind and good and faithful and gentle. Who doesn't want, who who would prefer fits of rage to self-control? You know, it's a lot more attractive as a list, I would reckon, than the fruit of the sinful nature. But these, again, they don't come by trying to have them. Paul is saying you don't experience peace or become more self-controlled or joyful or patient simply by trying to be at peace or trying to be self-controlled or joyful or trying to be patient. They are the fruit of the Spirit. If we sow to please the Spirit in all manner of ways, in due time we'll reap these qualities in our lives if we don't give up. So, let's just step back for a moment as we conclude here and look at the two options. There's the fruit growing in the please myself field, and then there's the fruit growing in the pleasing the spirit field. Which would you like to reap? Which one do you prefer? Paul said, my aim is to please God. And each of us needs to ask ourselves, is that my aim? Is my desire to please God? And ultimately, therefore, to reap this stuff? Or is my desire really to please myself? Because there's consequences to that. And here's an interesting thought. There are, of course, exceptions to this, but as a general rule, it's probably fair to say that the things that are happening to us now, or many of them, are the harvest of thoughts and actions that we have sown in the past. And th- today's thoughts and actions and our seeds being sown for a future harvest. So, since all of us are now reaping some of what we once sowed and we're sowing what in due course we will reap, it's vital we take really seriously this principle, sowing and reaping, and we take care in how we invest. As I finish, let me just share a few thoughts from the wise Bible teacher John Stott. And he is describing here the abundant life that the abundant life is found in living the way God intends us to live, and he just encapsulates that in the phrase, holy lives. He says this, if we want to reap a harvest of holiness, and I would add, and all those positive fruits, our duty is twofold. First, we must avoid sowing to the flesh, and secondly, we must keep sowing to the Spirit. We must ruthlessly eliminate the first and concentrate our time and energies on the second. He writes The old adage is true sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. This is good biblical teaching. God wants us to know and to live the best kind of life. He hasn't come with rules and regulations and tickets and fines. He is a wonderful, wonderful God who passionately loves her. He's a God who gives and loves to reward. And He invites us into deeper relationship with Him as we make choices to invest in His kingdom. So, over the next few weeks that I'll speak, we'll look at practical ways that we can invest in our relationship with God through spending time with Him in prayer, through getting into His Word through giving of our resources, and through serving others. And by the end of the series, I'd I'd really like us all to have a, a bit of a fresh vision of the God who longs to give us a taste of the life to come in the here and now. And if you choose over the course of this series not just to listen, but to actually practice what you've heard, I can promise you, as God does in His Word, that every little investment will reap returns.